Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, owner of America's first ever 50s-themed satanic flower shop, Do Wop Thou Wilt. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's cute. I, I would totally go there. I, I will totally would. go there, because it's obviously real. Oh, I like... It's Halloween themed. <laughs> and just ever so slightly related to tonight's record. But first, are there any other co-hosts in the building? Yes. It's me, co-host Jeremy. And I'm hopping mad. Why? Well, I was carving pumpkins with a friend yesterday. And they... They flipped the pumpkin over and started cutting the hole in the bottom of it. And they're like, yeah, the guts just come out real easily and like the top won't sink in. And it made me so angry. Like the hats. It's all about the pumpkin hats. <laughs> See, I didn't know if you were going to say like you were angry because you only just discovered this pumpkin hack for the first time in your life. But. It's no. to you. This is an abomination. There's a sacred tradition at play here. Yeah, I see. Yeah, we have to preserve the little pumpkin hats with the little stem on them. <laughs> I love them. Jeremy Ruggles, pumpkin carving gatekeeper. Yeah, <laughs> pumpkin hat aficionado. <laughs> That's almost starting to sound like some kind of Ren Fair title. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good, Jeremy. I'm sorry you're mad, but hope. Hopefully by the end of the episode, you'll have cooled down. I'm hoping it's a one-off thing and not a trend. Hope people aren't on TikToks right now, cutting the bottoms of the pumpkins. That ain't right. <laughs> it doesn't want to live in a world like that. You heard it here first, folks. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook. And yesterday, upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd go away. That's kind of spooky, Ooh. huh? Is that Edgar Allan Poe? You would think it was. It's Hughes Mearns. Oh. Yeah. I know it sounds like a Poe type thing, 
but uh, it's why are we why are we doing all this spooky stuff? Uh, oh wait, I mean it's pretty obvious. We already talked about carving pumpkins. I yeah. think people know it's Halloween. <laughs> yeah, you can't can't play that card, Peter. Also, if you're just like alive in America, I think you're pretty well aware of when is the season that Halloween is quickly approaching. <laughs> I got so used, I get so used to having to like queue up the theme for the episode. <laughs> I forget that this is just something people know about. Yeah. Except for maybe our non-American listeners, which we I don't, do I don't know if Halloween's really out there in the rest of the world or not. S- Samhain. <laughs> Samhain? Yeah. It what? looks like Samhain. Now, that would be getting into a whole history lesson of Halloween, <laughs> which I don't think is what we came here to do. No. <laughs> what did we come here to do? Well, big surprise. We came here to talk about a record. As we have done. It's our tradition. This is our third Halloween spectacular. It's the most haunted time of the year when I dig through my record collection and find something extra haunted and creepy and we listen to it and we talk about it and i gotta say guys i i can say with confidence that this is definitely the most haunted record we've featured on a halloween episode yet that tracks yeah you know last year i think there was some criticism that it wasn't very haunted wasn't super halloween like jeremy didn't even like the music I'm, i'm ready to redeem myself this year Oh, that uh, Beaver and Krause record yeah. didn't go over so well as a yeah. Halloween record? I mean, I still love it. Can't dampen my spirits, but, you know. Yeah, we did Instant Funk the first time around. Which what, Did that have like one Halloween-ish song on it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a stretch to find really spooky-sounding records that are in a dollar bin, you know? <laughs> and not terrible. And not terrible. I mean, in fact, the record we're talking about today, not technically a dollar bin record. It definitely was at one point. If you find it, it's probably going to be $10 now, but we're just going to bend the rules a little bit again. It's fine. But anyway. Well, what is it? We're talking about Exuma and his 1972 album, Snake. Sounds pretty haunted to me. Oh, it's super haunted. And this is the final episode of our 1972 kickoff month. Let's go ahead and hear a song, shall we? We shall. Dropping the needle, side A, track one, as it should be. Obia, Obia, O. Back. 
I gotta say, I think Tim Burton missed out by putting all those Harry Belafonte songs in Beetlejuice. I think he could have put some Exuma songs in the film. Yeah, if he really knew what he was doing. Yeah, you heard it here first. Tim Burton doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) From what I understand, Exuma was at least a little bit influenced by Harry Belafonte, though. So there's a connection. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, that, that was definitely came to mind when I was checking this out. So I'm glad to hear that. Makes sense. Jeremy, what's your familiarity with eczema? Had you heard about it previous to us doing this episode? Negative. I heard about it when you were like, hey, Jeremy, we're doing this record. It's a, it's That's a, it. It's a great way to learn about records. Wish I had someone yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> you had scoped me to eczema before, Sean. The second album, is it just called Exuma 2? Yes. Exuma 2, which is the one that comes right after Exuma 1. Yeah, Exuma has been something I've been into for kind of a while now, actually. I first got into this guy, oh, probably about 2009-ish. I had just started doing my radio show on WIDR in Kalamazoo. That's the college independent radio station that's been going for a long time peter was a dj as well yes and i I did most of my show at the beginning off of a computer so i'd make a playlist of new songs every week and i got a lot of the material by going through music blogs and downloading stuff on mega upload and media fire and those old download websites there was a few golden years on the internet there where you could find all kinds of interesting, obscure music on these highly curated music blogs and just download it all for free. And I learned a lot of stuff, but I was typically looking for experimental and outsider music and that kind of thing. And I found a blog that was talking about Exuma and just instantly the artwork and everything about it intrigued me, downloaded it, and I've been a fan ever since. Yeah, the sound feels kind of modern in a way. The way it kind of blends almost like lo-fi sounding elements together and and the vocals having that like distorted vocal on top of acoustic instruments felt like way, way, way ahead of its time to me. Definitely a visionary musician, to say the least. Ahead of his time. Yeah, which made it all the more curious to me that the all music review for this record basically said that it was standard fare of the time. I didn't understand that angle at all. <laughs> I know. In what world is that all music reviewer living in that this record is just like the most boring run of the mill thing? Like, oh, another Exuma record. <laughs> People doing this like weird psychedelic folk with West African folklore imagery. Ho hum. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I would happily live in the world where that was more common, especially if it was this good. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I feel like there's a lot of uh, like underground groups of the time that kind of did an amateurish version of this that whose records go for much, much more. Yeah, and I was thinking about that and the all music review a little bit and i kind of had the thought you could compare this to some of like the freak folk and drugged out music that was happening especially some of the new york kind of folk related stuff thinking of esp disc related stuff like holy modal rounders or maybe even the fugs a little bit the gods the gods yeah there's plenty of new york comparisons around this time period but to me exuma still stands out and has a uniqueness to it that i don't really find many other places it, it seems that i would say the music has more of a weight to it it's not just him screwing around trying to be weird getting fucked up and trying to freak people out like you can tell the imagery and the music and the culture behind what he's doing has deep roots and the spiritual elements that he's using are not just for theatrics. Yeah, and a lot of it's very soulful and even, dare I say, poppy. You know, there's hooks and, and whatnot. Yeah, he's not the kind of artist to just find one thing and stick with it. Um, he was constantly reinventing himself and going new areas and you know, bringing a new influence into the, the boiling pot that was his art. There's a lot going on for sure. Speaking of a lot going on in the deep roots, let's talk about that song title of the first song, Obia. Have you guys ever heard that word before? You know what that means? <laughs> I I know that I, I, I know it's something very personal and important to Exuma, but I can't remember what it means. It's like a... A medicinal practice, essentially. Yeah, right? yeah. In a way, the uh, the description I wrote down, which there's, it's one of those things that it it, it goes deep, and there's a lot of different explanations. And uh, obia, it can be found in different cultures, and there's different variations on it. There's not like one way it can be described, but it is typically a non-theistic religion and body of spiritual knowledge that originated in West Africa. Most of the practices are centered around healing and justice seeking. Comparisons have been made to other African diaspora religions, such as Haitian voodoo and Santeria. Yeah. And he was a practitioner of Obia. More or less, you know, it's hard to tell how much of this is an earnest belief system and how much of it is, kind of a respect or appreciation of his culture and his ancestors. I'd heard a report that like later in life when he was in failing health, a friend went to visit him in the hospital and he was, you know, in the hospital submitting to modern medical practices, but at the same time was surrounded by candles and had like oils all over him. So he was kind of had equal footing in the past and the modern world in superstition and science, it would seem. I had read that he said it was taught to him by his parents and that his parents had been taught by their parents and it was like generationally handed down to him. And from what I understand, that is typically how Obia 
is handled. It's a, it's an oral tradition. It's an ancestral tradition. So again, like different countries and different families are going to have different versions of it and different aspects that appeal to them. Some people are going to be using it strictly as, you know, knowledge of using herbs to heal people. And some people are going to take it in a more like satanic justice seeking kind of way. Uh, There's, there's, it can mean a lot of things to different people. It's been distilled through many generations. So as far as Exuma's music goes, he has described the intent of his music as to be the mirror of the mind of the heart and the spirit of man and women's souls to let them see themselves for what they are. And as far as the actual sound of his music, he described it as all music that has ever been written and all music not yet written. It's feeling emotion, the sound of man, the sound of day creatures, night creatures, and electrical forces. Well, all music really dropped the ball on the review of this album. (laughs) It's about all music. That actually, I saw that quote from him and it reminded me a little bit of, there's that interview with Sun Ra on uh, night music with David Sanborn, where Sun Ra said that he was influenced by all musicians, regardless of genre. I definitely thought about the Sun Ra comparisons a lot while researching this. I would go so far as to say that you could call Exuma the Sun Ra of folk music. I think you just did. I think I think we did. Two other people that I wanted to kind of discuss similarities and differences real quick. He gets compared to Richie Havens pretty frequently. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I absolutely heard that. It, there's I believe a song on this album where he begins repeating freedom over and over, and it reminded me of Richie Havens at Woodstock. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, not to jump ahead, but then in reading more, it turned out that Exuma came up in the Greenwich folk scene, Greenwich Village folk scene with Richie Havens. Exactly. They were contemporaries, played together, I'm sure were friends. And there's some similarities in tone of their voice. They're both guys that were in some ways rooted in the folk tradition, but also used a lot of improvisation, especially in their live show, and got experimental at times. Exuma definitely got much more experimental than Richie Havens ever did. And I think Richie was definitely more grounded in American folk than Exuma ever was. And then the last guy that... I kind of kept thinking about was Captain Beefheart. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially from the angle of being, you know, the guy who almost all of the music is written by and arranged by, and he's this kind of oddball guru type figure leading this group and making this music that's very ahead of its time, gained a cult following, but was largely misunderstood by most people that encountered it. And also had, They both had different attempts at more commercial sound or trying out other genres. And both of them didn't really have a lot of success with that for the most part. And I think they both kind of struggle a little bit with being pigeonholed as these kind of shocking outsider artists. Well, I'm intrigued to learn more. Well, before we learn more, you want to hear another song? Yes. All right. We're going to go with probably the most haunted song on this entire record. It's called... 13th Sunday looking at side B track one and supporters of our Patreon who've been listening to the monthly mixes 
have heard this song in one of the mixes that I did. Sham Forest, Hail Dambalam, Sham Forest, Hail Elekba, Sham Forest, Hail Azrili, Sham Forest, Hail Belzebub, Sham Forest, Hail Shango, Sham Forest. I summon the evil one from the dead. Start at your feet and nod your head. I think after hearing that, no one can really argue that this is not an appropriate Halloween pick for a record this year. The number 13 is haunted. <laughs> and he's, he's, Sunday is the most haunted day of the week, everybody knows. Everybody knows. He's Satan's next of kin. He says it right there on the song. He's got creepy backing tracks on it. That song is haunted, my dude. Oh, yeah. And like, touch me with your bony lips. Mm-hmm. Kiss me with your bony lips mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, he's, That's a good one. He's getting wild with the imagery here. And uh, this is certainly not the first time he's dipped into creepy imagery like that. There's all kinds of spooky sounds on his other records before this. Speaking of spooky sounds, you want to drop one on us, Sean? It's been a minute since, since the cold open. <laughs> I'm all flustered. I don't know. You've loaded up your sample. Yeah, I know. I got so many. All right. Pick a number between one and 12. Seven. Four. Seven, Seven and four. that do it for you trippy all right i like it well do you guys want to hear some bio on the great exuma yes yeah that's his birth name right no his birth name is none other than mcfarlane gregory anthony mckay (laughs) 
Tony McKay for short. Tony McKay for short. Born February 18th, 1942 on Cat Island in the Bahamas. And then shortly after that, his family moved to Nassau, which is where he grew up. Yeah, it was so funny when you, you had suggested that we check out his first album before listening or before recording this episode as well. And I uh, was wondering, like, I, I wonder how how like far this guy went with the Exuma moniker, like trying to put that out there as who he really was. And in the very opening song of his first album, he said, Tony McKay was my given name. Yeah, <laughs> like, like he, you were wondering if he had a period where he tried to keep his real name secret and just fully become Exuma. Yeah, like a question mark in the Mysterians type of deal. Yeah, it's interesting how he kind of plays with the relationship of like his different personalities and the Exuma character that he created. I saw him describe Exuma as the electrical part of his being that came down from beyond Mars on a lightning bolt and said that it was his name when I lived in the stars. Again, it sounds like something Sun Ra would have said. Yes, very much so. Uh, real quick though, how much do you guys know about the Bahamas? Not much. Not as much as I should. <laughs> I know there's over 200 islands referred to as Exuma. Exactly. That is a group of islands, most of them very, very small, uninhabited islands, but it's a specific part of the Bahamas. I thought it might be helpful to have just a extremely brief little history lesson of the Bahamas and the people that have inhabited it. It was originally inhabited by the Lucayan people, and these would have been the people that Christopher Columbus first encountered when he arrived in America, and as a result of this meeting, the Lucayan people were almost completely eradicated by the year 1520. And then for about the next 250 years, the Bahamas were largely uninhabited and were actually a popular hideout for pirates. Up until the late 18th century, when the islands were settled by American colonial loyalists, also known as slave owners, fleeing the Revolutionary War. Hey, they were uh, British-loving slave owners, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is why they started cities named Georgetown, things like that. So uh, a very tumultuous history. And a lot of the Bahamanian history that Eczema is bringing into his act definitely has to do with the enslaved peoples that have been inhabiting the island since the late 18th century. And a lot of those enslaved peoples are bringing their tradition from West Africa, which is why Exuma is embodying this kind of West African tradition in the Obia religion, yet coming from the Bahamas. I also stumbled in my reading upon a very modern history fact that the haunted festival, the fire festival, <laughs> took place in on one of the islands that is Exuma. Yeah. Oh, the ongoing yeah, tumultuous is. history of the Bahamas. <laughs> the famous festival that was not fire festival. That's the one. One I don't think we need to provide any more context for. That was like a there was a moment where that was the big talk of the world. Yeah, they only made like ago. four documentaries about it, so the information <laughs> is out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if not look it up, it is fascinating. If you if you don't know Mm-hmm. So Tony McKay moved to New York City in the year 1959 with his first intention of becoming an architect, just like George Costanza. 
And <laughs> by 1962, he had run out of money and was feeling a little defeated. But some friends of his introduced him to people in the Greenwich Village folk scene, and he quickly became a regular at now legendary venues such as Cafe Wa, The Bitter End, and Cafe Bazaar, alongside fellow up-and-coming musicians like Bob Dylan, Richie Havens, and Karen Dalton. Just like George Costanza. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think you mean Art Vanderlei. Yes. <laughs> so during the 60s, Tony released three singles under the name Tony McKay tried out various different styles, including a song in 1965 called Detroit, which is actually a pretty excellent Northern soul stomper, believe it or not. I don't know if you guys heard that song that I sent to the group chat earlier today. I I hadn't uh, done any reading yet at that point, And I was like, I don't know what this random song <laughs> is by this random person. So no, I did not hear well, it. Well, check it out. It's <laughs> check it out to the listeners and uh, any co-hosts that haven't heard it yet. Tony McKay, Detroit. You can find it on YouTube. It's a great song. And then his last single came out in 1967. It was a track called Island Hog. And if you listen to it, it starts to show a little of the developing Exuma sound. So in the late 60s, he was noticed by the manager of the band The Blues Magoos, Bob Wilde. Oh, yeah who helped Tony get signed to Mercury Records, which is the label that the Blues Magoos had released, I think, their first two albums on. Yeah, they did the psychedelic lollipop album with the hit song, We Ain't Got Nothing Yet. Correct. I thought that was an interesting connection. That's that's a great album, but I don't know if it's cheap anymore. I don't know if it's one we could feature. Well, you know, maybe I'll answer that question later on. We'll see. Ooh, ooh, foreshadowing. (laughs) So it was around this time that Tony began to develop the Exuma persona and put a backing group together called the Junk Band, which also featured, I believe, two members of the Blues Magoos. They are on the first Exuma record. And something I couldn't quite figure out is I don't know if he was actively performing as Exuma and the Junk Band before getting the record deal. I saw some hints that maybe it was a kind of thing of he tried to get signed as Tony McKay and the label came back with like, no, you need kind of like a gimmick or a vehicle, something that we can really sell this with. So it's possible that he kind of developed this whole thing to go with the record deal and have like the image to back the music. But either way, um, it seems like something that had been, you know, like he was heading in that direction already no matter what and he was drawing on childhood roots and culture from the bahamas that he was trying to bring to new york with him so i I think this sound was at least for the most part inevitable whether it was pushed by mercury records at the time or not so as i said exuma and the junk band was heavily inspired by his bahamian roots He missed his home and wanted to bring back the culture to New York. And a big part of this was his fond memories of something called the Junkanoo Parades that he watched twice a year in his childhood. These were events celebrating the culture and history of the enslaved peoples in the Bahamas, and they featured songs, dance, and very elaborate costumes. Which if you find pictures or footage of Exuma back in the day, he was wearing a lot of elaborate costumes as well, all kinds of beads and feathers, and his band was all decked out as well. It was a sight to behold. I'm sure the early concerts were pretty legendary. Is there much footage 
that you came across? I haven't found very much. I, I wish there was more. <laughs> Mostly pictures. It's hiding in a vault somewhere. Somewhere. Someone's got to have it. So believe it or not, initially Mercury kind of thought they had the next big thing with Exuma. If you look at the context, Dr. John had just recently started getting big on the scene. His first album, Gree Gree, came out in 1968 and had been a big success. And there was hopes that Exuma could kind of ride in that similar vein. You know, Dr. John had a lot of the voodoo imagery going on, being from New Orleans. And they're like, yeah, well, this works. Let's make it happen with Tony McKay. <laughs> yeah, I definitely also thought of Dr. John when mm-hmm. checking this out. Mm-hmm. So as a result, Exuma's first album was well-marketed by the label and critically acclaimed. However, the sales never followed through. He released his second album, Exuma 2, that same year. These both came out in 1970. And then Mercury dropped him pretty much right after that. He was only signed to the label for about a year before they gave up entirely, unfortunately. Right after leaving Mercury, Exuma was then signed to Kama Sutra Records and its parent label, Buddha Records. Some people saw this as kind of an odd move, since the labels were primarily known for their bubblegum pop sound. Yeah, but wasn't Beefheart also on that label I at was, one point? That's exactly what I had next in my notes. However, they had also signed and released the first two Captain Beefheart records. Yeah. So there was some experimentation, but certainly wasn't where the label's money was at any point. Makes more sense than being on Mercury to me, though. It seems pretty wild to me that they thought they had the next big thing. <laughs> yeah, but as we've talked about before, that like late 60s time period was such a, a strange time in music when bands were making money that it seems like they shouldn't have been. So labels were just confused and throwing money around. Yeah, Yeah, I think Frank Zappa has said that basically it was all old people that were completely out of touch and they would just take a chance on things. And that's why so much weird stuff got signed. (laughs) Exactly. So after moving to Kama Sutra, he released his third album and first for the new label called Do Wad Nanny. That came out in 1971. Again, not a lot of sales. And then in 1972, he released the album we're listening to today, Snake, as well as another album called Reincarnation. Both quadruple platinum. Yeah, quadruple platinum. (laughs) In a perfect world. A final Kama Sutra album called Life was released in 1973. After this, he left the label and remained an independent artist for the rest of his career. There's some speculation as to how much push there was from Kama Sutra to get him to record a more commercial sound. Reincarnation and Life, both those albums are significantly less experimental and feature some seemingly out-of-place covers. He does a couple Rolling Stones numbers, even does a Paul McCartney solo cover. And many fans consider this album Snake to be Exuma's last good album. But the one that we're yeah, listening, the one we're to, listening today. to today. I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. It seems like maybe a slightly unfair stereotype or kind of pigeonholing Exuma into saying that like his experimental out there music is the only stuff that's good. You know, it seemed maybe a little ironic to me that when Exuma first started a big part of why his initial album sales were so low is likely that 
stores and DJs and promoters just didn't really know what to do with it or how to categorize it. I'm sure some record stores just put his albums in the soul bin because he was a black artist, but that obviously doesn't fit there. It doesn't really fit in the folk music. If you put it in rock and pop, like, are rock fans going to like this? It's like, who do you sell this to, you know? Yeah. But then nowadays, it's like he's been rediscovered to a certain extent, and some people consider him kind of a foundational outsider musician, yet now he's kind of boxed in as only his experimental early out there work is valuable. And I'm saying that I think he should be celebrated as a multifaceted artist capable of expressing a full range of emotions through a range of genres and mediums. Yeah, you know, I only checked out the first album and this, which you said was his third album. Fourth. Fourth. Fourth, yep. But in those two records, I hear someone with a pretty wide range. Like I said, some of the catchier numbers on this album were among my favorite tracks. Yeah, and that was another thing that made me think of Beefheart again. Some of my favorite Beefheart songs are the real pretty, slow kind of pop numbers. Like, he could write a great pop song when he wanted to and he could also write some you know life-changing extremely challenging music they were they both had both styles in their repertoire yeah definitely commercially viable artists they're not just like wild man fisher or something yeah exactly (laughs) they could they could do what they wanted they could change when they wanted and try different things but unfortunately the uh the record buying public is not always there with you one other artist that I was reminded of a little bit uh, while listening to this was David Peel in the Lower East Side, Have a Marijuana. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that definitely also came to mind. That I guess some of the moments that are a little more shambling when it gets in, into that sound. Yeah. Although, you know, a lot of Exuma's stuff, there isn't as much of a sense of humor. You know, there's there's joyful and celebratory songs, and there's creepy and sad songs, but he doesn't really get hokey ever, which is kind of the thing that turns me off of a lot of the other kind of New York freak folk from this time period. When it gets too goofy, it's like I can't I can't hang very long with that stuff. Yeah, and a lot of it does at one point or another. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's true. That it, you know, and he, but as you said, he was kind of coming up right with some of that stuff too. Mm-hmm. So there might some of it might have worked its way into his sound yet yeah like you said he had his more spiritual thing going on. True. I noticed uh repeatedly in the album the electric guitar sounded like straight out of a Velvet Underground song to me. Oh <laughs> yeah, like that's that interesting. Super clean, kind of dull like the highs were rolled off it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the the tone knob has been turned back. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's Lou Reed or Sterling Morrison who was doing that more in the in the Velvet Underground, but yeah, that is a distinct part of their sound that you don't hear many other people do, even yeah. with even with how influential they are. <laughs> yeah, I found that and very interesting mixing with all the percussive elements. It kind of created this sort of bed for all that stuff to jump off of. And the music really draws you in, too. There's not a lot of Exuma stuff, at least not in these earlier records, that fits his background music. It's the kind of thing you kind of, you really have to pay attention to it. It demands your attention. Yeah, that's something I, I noticed that this was an album that I could kind of just roll with. Uh, but the closer I focused on it, the more I noticed going on both lyrically and musically. Mm-hmm. And tonally, you know, he plays around with 
these kind of happy or sad sounding songs and he has tracks that have kind of dark themes but then are written in a major key you know subway bound for hell is like a major key kind of happy song singing about everyone in a subway headed towards hell but then like a song we're going to hear later happiness and sunshine is a minor key song and sounds kind of sad and affecting even though the lyrics are seemingly this uh, bright joyous material i think my favorite song is don't let go that's a Same. great song are you not playing that one today i am gonna play it right now actually oh thank heavens <laughs> i decided to put the haunted songs at the beginning and the uh I guess the more spiritual sounding songs at the end, if you want to call it that. I don't know. Makes sense. Don't Let Go, though. I feel like this one has like a real kind of timeless folk music quality to it. Like I could have seen Bob Dylan having a hit with a song like this. It feels like something that should be in the catalog, you know, or like in the in the canon. I mean, like I want to hear other people do versions of this song. Great American Songbook. Yeah, exactly. Like the modern Great American Songbook. Well... How about you hit us with that great American songbook candidate? But before you do that, let's uh, throw another number at you for your little loop. All right. Nine. There you go. Nine. Okay, we're looking at side A, track three, Don't Let Go. Don't let go of your soul, it's the only thing you got, when everything that you got is through, your soul is the only thing that's you.
that song really showcased what you mentioned that like it's undeniably catchy it's like that could be a pop song yeah yeah it was when i was checking this out you know doing things and listening it's like wow this is the same album that i started on (laughs) you know once i got to that one it was just so uplifting and joyous should have been a hit should have been a hit maybe it will be after this yeah, yeah, we we have like that Stranger Things level influence. Yeah, totally. We, we, we're gonna be the uh, for Exuma. Yeah, Exuma's gonna uh, knock Kate Bush back off the charts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love that song. And again, that one has just a little bit of sadness to it. You know, it's a pop song. It feels like this classic number, but there's there's a weight to it. There's something there. He's a great songwriter. Mournful tone to his voice at times mm-hmm. and very soulful too and i love the the kind of sparse backing vocals on there too and the kind of bluesy guitar happening like it all just blends into this wonderful kind of loose feeling thing going on it it's great well what's next in the story sean <laughs> so we kind of left exuma in 1973 we said that was the end of his major label career i get the impression that he left the label because he wanted to be an independent artist like i said there was speculation that maybe the label was pushing him towards a sound that he didn't want who knows if that's true or not but he definitely was the kind of guy that wanted to do things his way and had a specific vision at all times. So it makes sense to me that he kind of became this fiercely independent artist later in life. And he continued to record albums on small independent labels through the early eighties, including several records featuring legendary drummer, Bernard Purdy. Ooh. Yeah. Who, who we have discussed before known for the Purdy shuffle. Yes. Amongst other things. Bernard pretty Purdy. Possibly played on more Beatles songs than Ringo Starr. Yep, that's what the internet tells me. (laughs) I imagine Tony and Bernard had to have been friends because Bernard Purdy was not the kind of guy that would typically just play on independent records. (laughs) This was like a first call major label studio musician. So I'm sure it was more of like a favor to a friend that he was featured on these records that probably sold like maybe a hundred copies in their first run or something. Yeah. During Exuma's independent years. Yeah. Into like the late seventies, early eighties kind of thing. Although he did have several local hits in the Bahamas. And from what I understand, continues to be kind of a national hero and a, a great source of national pride in the area. He also kind of unsurprisingly found a second home in the city of new Orleans. As we said, there was the Dr. John comparisons from the very beginning, but he said it was a a city that he just felt right at home at. And he said the, the city was more accepting of music than just about any other place he'd been. And he became a staple at the new Orleans jazz festival played every year for over 20 years and was a big local hit in the area. So I think he had like a pretty good end, you know, he created this great body of work. He was beloved by everyone he was involved in, I found zero negative comments from anyone. Any kind of 
comment I could find on this guy from people he worked with or people he'd been involved with all just had only the nicest things to say about him. And when did he transition? When did he leave us? January 1997. Right, right around the same time as Towns Van Sant. So he would have been 55, 54. So not too old when he transitioned. He had more art to give us, but he still left us with quite a bit to go back into. Yeah, it seems like he has a pretty good discography. Yeah, and on top of that, he was a visual artist as well. Like I said, he's a multifaceted artist that worked in different mediums. The artwork on this album, Snake, and at least the three records that came before it, is all based on paintings that he did, which have a very distinctive kind of slightly unsettling look to them but they still they fit the music they pass the vibe check for sure oh yeah yeah all the various artwork of his that i did see it it's it's kind of like with captain Beefheart, how his visual artwork sounds or looks a lot like his music sounds yeah <laughs> if only tony could have gone out like captain Beefheart and had a, a successful visual art career towards the end yeah yeah i think uh Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart's real name, I think he was more successful as a, a painter than a musician. That is what they say. At least more financially and critically successful in those fields during his lifetime. Yeah. Did Exuma do this album cover? He did. Oh, that's cool. Did, yeah, and if you look at the actual jacket too at any point, there's a inside gatefold image that's also very creepy there's like a snake on a cross being held by this kind of like demonic figure in the shadows it's good stuff honestly these records would be worth it for the artwork alone if the music wasn't as good as it actually is true i really like the cover Mm -hmm. yeah the whole package it's it's worth it it's worth a dollar (laughs) (laughs) or the uh looks like i paid eleven dollars for my copy again stretching the rules here but (laughs) this is the kind of thing where uh, as we've said before it's obscure enough that if you might stumble upon someone that just has no idea what it is and threw it in a dollar bin yeah and when after you told us to check out the first album i thought well this one actually seems like a better fit for halloween uh but you said that one's like a 50 to 100 dollar record now yeah i was discussing exuma with a friend of the show steve plastic crime wave Krakow earlier today and he said there was a time not too long ago when he could find all the exuma records for cheap and he used to just buy them to give to friends but that day has long passed the first record has been steadily increasing in value especially over the past couple years it hit its 50th anniversary two years ago and rolling stone talked about it and a few other places kind of hyped it as this one really amazing overlooked gem of the outsider music world. So that one has gone up and then the other records are kind of behind it, but this one's still pretty cheap and the ones after it are pretty cheap as well. And like I said, the man has a huge catalog that's worth exploring, not just the first record. Also, I think some of that value increase might have something to do with the song off the first record being featured on Jordan Peele's latest movie. Nope. Oh, yeah. 
get that Jordan Peele bump. Exactly. He's he's responsible for many Ripperton's albums going up in price. <laughs> no, I don't think that's true. Probably Quentin Tarantino, but <laughs> maybe a few people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe many Ripperton. I saw a little interview with Jordan saying that he got turned on to Exuma later in life and was completely blown away and felt like it was this lost part of the culture that was a huge influence to him. And he was listening to Exuma a lot while beginning to write the movie Nope and said that he just thought it was like a a big part of kind of a spiritual influence on that movie and the writing process for him. So I thought that was pretty cool. You know, I got to say, I have not watched Nope yet. You know, I really liked Get Out, but then I watched Us and it freaked me out. I was terrified for days after watching it. And that, that hereditary is one of the only other films that's done that to me, which we were, we were recently discussing not on the podcast (laughs) amongst it, just talking about horror movies together in our group chat that we have going on. But so I haven't watched Nope yet. Have both, have either of you seen it? Oh yeah. I actually have not. I love his first two movies. Saw them both in theaters. I just haven't been going to the movie theater like at all the last few months. The only movies I've seen have been in when I've taken Eloise to see some kids' movies. So I'm a little bummed that you I... You didn't take them to see Nope? <laughs> did not take my nine-year-old child to see Nope. <laughs> I watched the 1930s Dracula with Bella Lugosi the other day, and Eloise was like, that was terrifying. <laughs> so they're a bit of a lightweight still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Sean, I think at this point, A, we need another haunted sound effect and and b we need some recommended similar albums so three three okay i think we might have heard three 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 number three albums okay (laughs) here we go Are you guys terrified? Yes. Yeah, I feel like I just watched Nope. <laughs> it was pretty much like that, yeah. Pretty much the same thing. If you've heard those yeah, give those take. two sound effects, you've watched the movie Nope. <laughs> Real quick, I was planning on trying to have this whole section where I talked about all 15 of the musicians that are playing on this record. But when I looked it up, there's literally only one that really had a career outside of their association with Exuma and many of the musicians on this record, it would seem have never played on another commercially released album. So I don't know who a lot of these people are, but one of them we've featured before. Did either of you guys notice who that is? Ola Tunji. That's right. Yep. I did see his name on there. Fitting because I, I definitely got a little bit of Ola Tunji vibes. Yeah, so Ola Tunji is playing, obviously, various percussion throughout this whole record. I think this is the only Exuma record that Ola Tunji is on. But as we said, a lot of the folk and spiritual traditions that Exuma is working on originally come from the area in West Africa that Ola Tunji is from. So they have very similar heritage. And I, I think it makes great sense that they would both be a part of this. They're kind of 
also have this, you know, they're both teachers and protectors of the culture and the heritage and wanted to share it with the world. So to me, it made perfect sense that they're working together on this record, even though there's not a lot of Olatunji material that gets even nearly as strange as the Exuma albums. True. Wait, I just stole Jeremy's line. <laughs> you can borrow it for Halloween. Okay. I'm Jeremy for Halloween. <laughs> so generous. Okay, let's do these recommended albums. First up, as was hinted, I'm going to recommend the second Blues Magoo's album, Electric Comic Book from 1967. <laughs> their first album, Psychedelic Lollipop, the one that has their big hit, We Ain't Got Nothing Yet, is slightly harder to find. I don't know, it's like a $15 album now. Wow. I'm going to go out a limb and say their second album is better. It's more psychedelic. I think it's got more interesting stuff. The first album is still like, a little bit too bubblegum pop psych for me. I haven't heard that second album. So uh, maybe maybe we'll feature that second Blues Magoos sometime. Yeah, I used to... I feel like the psychedelic lollipop just used to be everywhere. <laughs> it's but, still got to be one of the easiest like psych albums to find. It's It's not a struggle. But the second one, I remember... Anytime we'd get that second album in at the record store, it would just sit forever because it didn't have the hit on it. But... Sometimes you got to drop the needle, people. There's good stuff out there. Cool. I look forward to checking that out. There you go. Second one, Buffy St. Marie's Illuminations from 1969. Yeah. we've. Uh, I've been rocking that album just lately because I picked up a copy in Philadelphia, as mentioned on a, another recent episode. That's right. And, yeah, it's such a fantastic record. Uh, you know, it is... The, the cat's out of the bag a little bit on that one now. I, mm -hmm. More pe has the of any Buffy St. Marie album that has the biggest following amongst non-Buffy St. Marie fans. You know, people that probably don't listen to the rest of her incredible catalog. Yeah, it's kind of like her uh, Nebraska, right? That's the comparison. Oh yeah, the, the I don't like Bruce Springsteen, but that Nebraska album is pretty. Yeah. That's all right. <laughs> I hate to say it, but that's probably about where I was at a few years ago. You guys might be slow. You, you guys in the best show might be slowly swaying me. I'm quietly judging you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I had, I had, you know, born in the USA and tunnel of love in the river, but I didn't, you know, darkness on the edge of town. I still don't know. That's, wow. that's my favorite one. Darkness on the, on the edge of town. That's the one to get, but that's not a recommended album for today. The third recommended album is Richie Havens. We mentioned several times, and I'm going to recommend his double album from 1969, Richard P. Havens, 1983. Mm, I don't know that one. To me, that's probably the most psychedelic Richie Havens. That's about the closest he gets on his solo material to getting into full Exuma territory. And he doesn't even like fully get there. But it's an amazing album. Uh, I've seen people describe it as a minor masterpiece or kind of an overlooked masterpiece. I don't know if we're ever going to get into doing a lot of return to artists or featuring albums from artists we've talked about before, but that's a, an amazing record worth exploring along with pretty much all of his catalog, honestly. Yeah, when we get to, to like episode 983, we might have to start yeah, that's, thinking about That's the oh. cutoff. I see you put a lot of thought into this, <laughs> the yeah. calculations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 983, that'll be okay. 
and the floodgates are open. Start. We'll do another Carpenters record. Do another Melanie record. Another Richie Richie. Hayes. Yeah, I can I can finally do my John Denver Rocky Mountain High episode. Yeah, it'll happen. All right, nine eighty three. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Mathematically determined. Uh, any other ones, Sean? Or is that what you had for us? Was that the magic three? That's the magic three. No more, no less. All right. Well, hit us with another sound effect. Jeremy, give him a number. The number is one. what are these haunted sounds sourced from this year it's it's still the same record as the last two years <laughs> <laughs> and that would be the chilling thrilling sounds of the haunted house by disneyland records that's right i thought they sounded familiar yeah but... <laughs> last year i just added effects to the same samples i used as the first year this year i erased all the samples and made new ones trying to do some more experimental stuff with it, but it's it's still the same record. Yeah. There's not a lot of Halloween novelty records out there, and normally when I find them, they're just trashed. So made it work for one more year. We'll see if I find fresh material for next year. <laughs> You've got a whole year to look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should try a little harder. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure every time you go out digging, that's the first thing on your mind before, you know, you're job yeah (laughs) (laughs) gotta find those spooky sounds (laughs) well thank you for adding that touch to this episode and thank you for bringing this wonderfully fun interesting record and artist i was only vaguely familiar prior to this well happy to help i'm a little hurt you didn't mention this before to me sean this feels up my alley. I just, I, sometimes I don't even know where your alley is anymore, though. Also, there's just so many records out there. I can't, I can't just tell them all to you right away. Gotta leave something for the future. Okay, that's fair. That's <laughs> really what I've learned from doing this podcast, even though I worked in a record store previously, and it's just, there's so many records out there, and you can only have so many conversations with people about records and you can only have so many algorithm things recommend other things to you online. You really got to just play every record that you see. Every single one. (laughs) Every Every single one. Climb every mountain, play every record. (laughs) Exactly. That's what we learned at I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Well, I'm going to play one more record for you guys and then we'll be on our way with this fine haunted episode. This is the song we mentioned before, Happiness and Sunshine. A nice, beautiful number. And that also concludes our look at the year 1972. 
we will never again feature a record from the year 1972 ever again. <laughs> you, you know what? Uh, speaking of, you know, blues magoos and, and psychedelic garage stuff, you know what I realized was released in 1972? Nuggets. No. Oh. The psychedelic comp. comp yeah. By It was put together by Lenny Kay from <gasps> Patti Smith's band. For some reason I thought that came out way later than that, but... Yeah, well, there were there were you know numerous sequels, installments of that, but that was the first. Hmm. Yeah, so another 1972 thing. Of course, that was music from you know previous years <laughs> compiled on that. Yeah, but huh. so well, thanks for that nugget, Peter. <laughs> Anything for a pun like that, Jeremy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, listeners. Uh, we will be back next week with a non-1972 selection. And with that, my name is Peter Cook, signing off. My name is Jeremy Ruggles, signing off. And I'm Sean Hartman, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>